Welcome to the All About Setwork podcast. This is where we talk about all things setwork. That can include training tips, a behind the scenes look at what your instructor or trial official may be going through, and much more. In this episode, we're gonna be speaking with Setwork University instructor, Natalie McManus, as she describes her summit trial experience. Before we start diving into the podcast, let me have Natalie do a very quick introduction of herself, where she can tell us all about her training experience in Setwork overall. Thank you, Diana. I'm delighted to be here on the podcast. And looking forward to telling you guys about the summit trial that I did recently. It was my first one, and it was very different and interesting. Um, so uh, thanks, Diana, for having me on. We are delighted to have you. And this is something that we're looking forward to be doing more in the future, just to allow people to have better understandings about how different things work, depending on where it is you may be trialing and different experiences people may have. So just so people have a little bit of an understanding about your background, how long have you actually been competing in NSCSW? Yeah, so I started Nosework in, it was either June or July of 2009. And then I did my first NW1 in May 2010. So it's been just over nine years since my first trial, and I've trialed um, six dogs since in that nine years since then. So when you're saying that you have all this experience in trialing in NACSW, you've trialed a d- number of different dogs. Were they all different types of dogs? Were they different types of drive or background or breeds? Um, yeah, there's been a little bit of variety, although they've all tended to be fairly high drive. My first nosework dog was a Border Collie Aussie mix. She was very reactive, and she's why I got into nosework, mostly that reactivity giving her an outlet. Um, but I've also trialed a, two Border Collies, one of my own and one of Michael's, a Belgian Malinois, who's my youngest now, and um, a Pomeranian belonging to a friend of mine. So very different size and type, but very high drive still. Um, And then the last one is a duck toller who belonged to a friend as well. So it's really exciting that you have this big variety, even though the drives may be the same, all very different sounding dogs. (laughs) Yes. Well, it was really fun to compete with the Pomeranian because I could just pick him up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I can't do with my own dog. <laughs> and that is the, the plague of anyone who has a larger dog, is that there are times you're like, if I could just pick you up, it would be so nice. <laughs> yep. They were late in calling us to one of our searches, and so they were kind of asking me to hurry. And it was a bit of a walk. I didn't want to make him run the whole way and then do a search, and it was hot outside. So I picked him up and ran him over there. And that's a really good point. So I I think that the one great thing about these podcasts is that they are pretty fluid with how we talk about things. We may have a general topic, but even when I'm doing it by myself, sometimes you're just talking and be like, wow, that's a really interesting thing to think about is when you're all doing trialing with your dogs, definitely keep in mind the fact that what they're doing before each of their searches, even if it's going from search A to search B, that's still calories and energy that they have to expend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, super important, especially when it's really hot or really cold or, you know, any kind of extreme. Um, But even at, you know, regular trials, although in Southern California, where I've done the majority of my trialing, it's pretty much always hot (laughs) when we're trialing. And even with my Border Collie, Hazel, she hates being picked up. She's 32 pounds, so I can pick her up. But the only times I subject her to that are if it's really hot and we have to walk over asphalt and it's you know, just not going to be good for her, but she glares at me the whole time. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, dogs are like, you know what? I did not appreciate you doing that. I'm a big dog. I can do it all by myself. And you're like, no, I need to do this for your safety. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Unfortunately, I can't tell her that she's going to burn her pads off if she insists on walking herself. <laughs> so I think that actually leads us into our next part of this is what are the kinds of considerations just on that field alone, as far as making sure you're keeping your dog safe and all the different things you have to think about. Does summit trials demand that you have an even greater appreciation for that? Because we see some of the videos online, you're like, my God. So <laughs> what what is it that you have to consider when you're thinking of doing a summit trial? Yeah, absolutely. So just to start out, it's two days. So maybe you could handle being out, you and your dog could handle being out in the heat or the really cold for one day. But are you both going to handle that well for two days? And people definitely need to be thinking about weather acclimation as well as their crate and car setup and their own setup. There were a few people at the so at the summit trial, which was up in Minnesota. Um, it's not you know winter anymore right now. This was about a month ago or so that I went up there, but it was about between 30 and 40 degrees during the day the whole time, and either raining or snowing pretty much the whole all day both days and there were a few people who didn't have remotely you know appropriate clothing and you know maybe hadn't brought as much as they would have normally and so that becomes really taxing over two days um and i think you know even for myself i i know i was super tired by the second half of the second day and my dog seemed to handle it quite well because she's a lunatic but um, that was something I needed to prepare more myself, both physically and mentally for the stress of, of two days. Um, and then really protecting her rest time. So I do the bare minimum of walking my dog around when they're not out for a search. I potty them and I make sure they have water and maybe they get a snack at some point during the day. But other than that, I let them rest in their crate. Um, but I've also spent time building the love of the crate and the ability to settle, which I know that not all dogs have when they first start nose work, but I think that's one of the most important components of enabling the dog to rest well in their crate and conserving their energy for those searches that especially at Elite and Summit are going to be big and long and draining. And that's actually a really good point. And I think it's something that people don't really consider. We're always so concentrated on having the dog find the hide, but there's all these things that go into it. And I think that piece that you just talked about of knowing there's a finite amount of mental and physical energy this dog is going to be able to expend <laughs> and that you're trying to protect that. And then also ensuring that you have those rest times, but that you as a handler, that also applies to you. <laughs> Um, so could you go into a little bit more detail about what it was like at the summer trial that you went to, how you can get into as much detail as you like, but I think just to give people a picture, how many search areas, how many hides, how far apart they were, how long the day was, feel free to go into as much detail as you like. Great. So yes, it was at a fairgrounds, um, in, in Barnum, Minnesota, out kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, we had four searches each day, but we did the walkthroughs for all eight searches at the beginning of day one. So that was quite different for me because then I'm having to kind of keep it straight in my head of, okay, this is what's relevant for today. This is what re is relevant for tomorrow. And I don't even normally document my walkthroughs very much. I don't draw things out or take pictures or videos normally, but I did because it was so much bigger than normal. Um, we had mostly big barn type searches 
um, there was a bit of variation. Some of them were more barn-like. Some of them were more kind of in really indoor feeling. Um, and one we actually had to drive to. I was kind of sort of on the other side of the fairgrounds. And so it would have taken us all a really long time to walk over there. And the weather was nasty, like I mentioned. So they had us drive kind of two at a time over there. Um, and the first two searches on the first day were six minutes. So that was quite a lot of time to start out. Um, the one I ran second was the one we had to drive to was three barns back to back. Um, and you had your, the time in between the barns was also in play. I think you may have even posted a walkthrough video of that um, back at the time. Um, and so, and the first barn had no hides, and we, but we didn't know any information for this search at all. So the first barn had no hides, second barn had one hide, and the third barn had two. Um, and so by the time you're done, and there's pretty much no way to not use basically all your time to search the barns and get to, you know, over to each one. I think it left a lot of us feeling like, you know, we didn't cover the search area as much as we wanted to. And um, we would have liked to kind of feel more confident in our decision to move on each time. Um, I ended up missing one hide in the final barn, um, but I, I didn't call any falses, which I was really happy about in that search. Um, and then this, the search I ran first that day was also a six minute search. It was bleachers on one side and then sort of a long strip of grass on the other. And it was actively raining when most of us went. Um, and, you know, bleachers are already kind of tough to walk on sometimes. And so, and these were also wet, even though there was an overhang over them. So I took them pretty slow. My dog was very nice to me, which was great. Um, and that's another thing to think about. You know, you may be walking in areas that are not as comfortable to you. And is your dog willing to kind of help you out or be nice? Or are they going to drag you to the top of the bleachers and back down again? Um, and, and just thinking of ways, you know, to keep both of you safe in situations like that if you do have a really intense dog. So then in the afternoon, we had two more searches. Uh, the first one I ran, uh, we knew that there was a range of one to four. And we had four minutes and it was a large, um, long barn of horse stalls. So it would, it had kind of two sets of stalls and two sets of stalls with an aisle down the middle. And then both ends were also in play. Um, and there were only two hides in that search and they were both quite close to the start area. Um, and so that was a bit challenging for a lot of people because you you had this huge area and some of the stalls were open and in play. And so you wanted to check all of those out. Um, but then they were, you were only finding and seeing um, odor changes of behavior right at the beginning there. So a lot of that is just, you know, mentally trusting that your dog is doing their job um, and that you don't have to cover things over and over again when it's big areas and not very many hides. And then the last search that I ran that day was um, a really big building that I don't know if they mostly used it for storage or what, but it was kind of separated into two different main rooms, quite long, um, probably a couple thousand square feet or so. And then some side uh, skinny like storage areas or something um, that you could get into parts of them, but then you couldn't get through the whole space and there'd be another door a little ways down and you could get in there. Um, so kind of interesting, um, 
from a handling perspective. But a really fun thing about that search is that the CO gave us a potential bonus. If we stayed in the start box that they had instead of a start line, it was a start box. And if you stayed in there while your dog found their first hide and you called alert, you got a one hide bonus, uh, which equals five points, which was very nice to have. Um, I think the majority of people ended up getting that, um, although not everyone. And in that search, we knew it was a range of two to six hides and we had five minutes. Um, and it ended up that there were five hides, um, plus you could get the bonus. So that's crazy. Well, like the kind of things that you're talking about. I mean, four really intensive, challenging searches. I mean, just the times alone are about three times as much as what you would normally see at a trial. And I think what a lot of people who are first starting out just always equate amount of space with number of hides. But what you're describing is that these are very large areas, but they don't actually have that many hides at all. So how would you suggest that people deal with that dichotomy of how, okay, great. I listened to Natalie's podcast. It sounds like something interesting. I may have to, you know, train for the next umpteenth years in order to get there, but I'm excited and I want to be able to do it. So what is it that people should do in order to prepare both themselves and their dogs to maybe ultimately do a summit trial? How is it that someone is supposed to, at the very least, just from the time standpoint, set up a training exercise where their dogs could potentially be in a space working out a six minute search, but there's not 30 hides? Yeah. So that is a great question. And it's something that a lot of people are struggling with moving from elite to summit, especially those who've been doing elite for a while. And they've gotten really used to having most of their searches contain a lot of hides. So probably the majority, at least for a couple of years had been maybe six to nine hides per search and not usually as big um, as these uh, summit searches. And so people have been coming into summit with the expectation of a lot of hides or just getting used to like within themselves, that reinforcement of the judge saying yes and getting to pay their dog and saying yes and getting to pay their dog over and over and over again throughout these searches and not having a lot of kind of what you might think of as downtime where you're just searching and not having anybody let you know if you're doing well or not, or if you're you know getting it right or getting it wrong. And I think we're also probably reinforced by just seeing those odor changes of behavior in our dog too, because we, you know, we've learned what those mean and they lead to that yes. And so from a handler perspective, that's really hard, um, even if the dog is okay with it, which I'll talk in a second about some exercises you can do. Um, but that's one thing that I noticed amongst my fellow competitors, because this was my first um, summit trial. And I also you know, I've been kind of watching trials for a while, um, both Elite and Summit, and, you know, noticing that they don't all contain a lot of hides. They've moved away from that to some extent in Elite, and they definitely aren't doing that in Summit where it's just gobs of hides the whole time. Uh, And so I was a little bit prepared that I might either have no hides in some searches or very few. Um, And so I was able to, not perfectly, but able to kind of help myself mentally of not getting worried about that. Um, But I was talking to some people who had done more summit trials than I have, and some of them were saying that they just don't enjoy that feeling of not getting the the odor, 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 yes, 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 over and over again. Um, And so I think that that's something that you can prepare yourself in early on, that searching 
can be fun and exciting for both you and the dog for searching sake as much as for finding odor sake. So like if you're an explosives or narcotics handler, you're not like, oh, let's go find something. You know, I want to find, you know, 10 stashes or 10 bombs today. You know, you kind of want to find as little as possible. You want to do your job and find what's there, but you don't want to find tons of stuff. Um, and, you, you know, people also who do environmental detection, things like that, they're often not finding thing after thing. They're searching potentially acres, you know, without finding something or without, with finding very little. Uh, but that's not the way we usually set up our classes or practices or trials, you know, it feels like there are a lot of hides all the time and the, and the hide finding is our goal, which it is because we have to find, you know, the hides and usually do that perfectly in order to cue or title. Um, but I think finding excitement and joy and fun with your dog in searching the area and clearing the area as much as finding hides uh, makes a really big difference. And that attitude in us uh, makes a big difference in the dog too. If we're bummed out when we go for, you know, 30 seconds or a minute and a half without finding anything, our dog thinks, you know, they're doing something wrong or, or, th you know, that something's going on. So I think attitude is really important there and setting, you know, kind of correct expectations depending on, you know, what kind of trial you're going to. Of course, no one going into an NW1 would be disappointed if there weren't three hides because they know that there's only one. But, you know, the different sorts of trials we get into kind of set our expectations. Um, and so from an exercise perspective, I like to work on things where I'm stretching how long my dog can work without finding a hide. And depending on the level of the dog, you know, when I first do this, I might start a little shorter. But when I first started doing it with my Border Collie, she was, I think she might have been an NW3 already. But we searched um, a house for like, think four or five minutes before I started setting hides and I had just had some on me and as she was searching ahead of me I started just sort of setting them down behind me or throwing them behind me um, and then we worked around the area and then she got them and so she was getting used to you know I searched really hard for a long time but that doesn't mean I should give up because I still could find something um, or if you have a really large area most of us don't have access to really large areas where we can just set one thing way way in the back which is why I tend to do blank first and then um, hide something and if you have an instructor or training partner you can have them kind of surreptitiously setting things down for you and you could start with just 30 seconds or a minute if your dog doesn't have experience with um, working for longer but I definitely think it's worth stretching it to you know six seven eight you know ten minutes because um, it doesn't really feel that long once you're doing it but if you've never done it if the dog's used to finding a hide and getting paid within 30 seconds it's gonna really freak them out that they you know, haven't. And that's when you will often get false alerts. Um, but if you have a really big area, then you can set one thing way, way in the back and work, you know, the whole area. Um, like, you know, not like, you know, that there's only one in the back, but like, you really think that there could be something there and you need to cover your search area thoroughly. Um, if you have the luxury of access to large spaces. And that's a really excellent exercise that you just outlined as far as introducing dogs to the concepts of working blank and then being able to int um, introduce some hides even after they've searched an area. But again, because I know that people at different levels are going to be listening to this and I'm always worried as an instructor that we're going to be like, oh, great. You know, I just started my dog on odor yesterday. So now I'm going to be doing what Natalie told me. <laughs> so what so how, first of all, when should people be introducing this kind of concept and then how often should they be doing it in their training? Yeah. So I wouldn't necessarily do it, you know, like first week or even first month, um, on odor, but 
I might, if I have, you know, an extended uh, primary stage with my dog, which I think can be really worthwhile for most dogs, I might do this um, with a dog, you know, 30 seconds of blank and then, or a minute, and have something set out there. Um, when, you know, there's kind of less on the line because you're not worried about screwing up their response to odor. And searching for food is just so, so natural. Um, but I, again, I would not do that, you know, first week or couple weeks that I am starting a dog on primary either. I would want to really build their expectation and foundation of hunting um, and, you know, going, you know, out into the environment and searching for themselves. You know, I wouldn't do it with a dog that's still looking to me for answers. Um, but then once the dog's on odor, you know, I think it's worthwhile to work on blank, um, even before NW1, because even though your searches, you'll have odor in all of your searches, you're going to have potentially sections of your searches that have no odor and the dog needs to have the ability to work through that and get to odor. Like say the CO set a really nice vehicle search where the odor was blowing straight to the start line. And then before you come, the wind switches and it's now going exactly the opposite direction. And so your dog needs to say, you know, even though I don't smell anything now, I'm going to trust that there's something out there and, you know, utilize my love of hunting and go out and do my job and, you know, and find it once they get into the right area. And it can also help the handler to read. People say, you know, I can't read my dog on odor. Well, most of the time they can, but they have a hard time reading when it's not odor. And so that's really important too. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm not going to throw it in every week or maybe even every month, but I think every once in a while, um, even, even at NW1 and 2, it's worth having. And it doesn't have to be really long. It could be, you know, 30 second to two to three minutes, um, just depending on the dog and the situation. And if you have somebody who can, you know, t t be there timing with you and giving you feedback, because it's really easy if you're uh, training on your own. Um, to not feel time passing correctly and either, you know, get worried that anything, you know, get worried that the dog hasn't found it, get worried that the dog is bored or frustrated. Um, and, you know, if you're the only one there staring at your dog, that can be really hard to interpret. Um, so if you have someone who can help kind of talk you through it, um, that's really helpful. That's great. I mean, I think that's a really helpful outline for something that people could do. Obviously, if they're interested in doing Summit, having a dog being able to work these giant spaces where there may not be any odor at all, <laughs> or there may just be such little amount of it as far as number of hides, that that is definitely something that I think is missing from a lot of training programs, you know, because we do are constantly trying to get the dogs to hunt more. And that usually the way that we think of it equates to hunting for more odor. <laughs> so the way that you described, it, I think is really important. And that I think ties into the next thing that I wanted to talk about was in addition to being concerned about overall endurance. So being able to deal with the weather, being able to deal with the mentality of going through this two day, really stretching event. I mean, summit is supposed to be like what the name says, the absolute top like hardest thing that you could ever do. So in addition to doing endurance, in addition to having your dog being able to work these giant spaces that may or may not have a large number of hides in them, are there any other skills in particular that you would think that dogs or handlers definitely would need to perfect or work on if they were interested in going toward the summit experience? Yeah, well, I think from a hide perspective, once you're past NW3, so like elite and Summit hides tend to be relatively similar. The the individual hides themselves, even if the quantity over the whole search is different. Um, 
So making sure that your dog can um, find hides that are quite close together, like just a couple of feet away from each other, you know, between maybe eight and 24 inches, you know, dogs tend to not be fully paying attention again, you know, when they've started, um, you know, when they've been rewarded in there, they start searching again. And so, you know, once you're past NW3, I think that's an important skill to kind of solidify with them of making sure they're searching again immediately and understanding that there could be hides really close together because the dogs search in the way that is the most efficient and reinforcing. So if they never have hides closer than like three to five feet apart, they're just not going to search that area as carefully because it's not, you know, calorically efficient. Um, and then also, you know, at Elite and Summit, making sure that they, you know, fluently can work uh, very elevated hides. Um, that's not something I like to work a lot because I don't like to do a lot of inaccessible because I want my dog to always be driving to source. And I don't want to teach them through doing inaccessible over and over and over again that further away is fine. You know, maybe today I'm paying you a foot away from odor and then tomorrow I'm paying you five feet from odor. Um, but then sometimes I want you to get all the way there. I think that's a little bit of an, you know, unfair thing to communicate to the dog if we're doing a significant amount of inaccessible um, and or even trialing a lot because the dogs tend to not be necessarily sourcing or we're not paying um, the same way we would when if we're trialing over and over again. Um, so I would work on, um, you know, significant elevation and, and more inaccessible. Um, so they're fluent in the concept, but then not drilling it, not doing it a lot, maybe you know, once a month or something like that. Um, maybe a little bit more when I'm kind of cementing the idea, but then going back to accessible hides. They don't have to be easy hides, but I want my dog to be able to get all the way to source. Uh, and then also when I am working significant elevation, I like to set things up so that my dog can actually get to the hide. Um, so maybe I have a staircase or something I can use so they can work the odor picture of significant elevation from the ground, but then they can problem solve that up the stairs and act, still get to the source and still get um, paid for that. Where we used to live, we had um, a barn with hay in it for our sheep, and sometimes they would be kind of stair step staggered, and when they ended up like that, I would put a hide on the ceiling or the top of the where the you know wall and ceiling meet and have my dogs work that, but they could get up those hay bales and source the hides. And you know, you have to always be looking at your dog's um, athleticism and mobility and you know, safety and what can they really do and you know, don't set things up in a way that's gonna be unsafe for them. Um, but I want also want them to be doing the best they can um, in searching. And then for sort of more regular inaccessibles, I'll sometimes set up a maze um, so that they can work the odor from the outside, but then they can also problem solve and work their way in closer and closer and get to the hide. So they get to see the problem kind of both ways. Um, and, and then in trial, I just have to call it. If my dog has said they've checked kind of every angle that makes sense, they've bracketed this hide and it doesn't look like they can get any closer, then I just need to call finish and not wait for some like magic communication of, you know, this is the closest spot I can get. Um, but take their communication of if I could get closer to it, I would, I've, ex you know, I've exhausted my options. I don't want to, I don't mean exhaust in, I'm going to push it forever, but exhaust in they've either like, say it's a large cart. They've gone all the way around the cart. If they could have gotten to it, if it was sourceable, they would have, and they haven't. Um, or like there was one hide at the summit trial that was in a, in the back of a closed stall. And so the best the dogs could do was kind of bracket 
both edges of that stall. They kind of had access to two sides of it. Um, but there was no way they were going to get in and get to it. And so, you know, asking them to do much more of that is just unreasonable and, of course, wastes a whole lot of time in trial. So some of that comes down to handler, both reading of the search area, of the odor picture and what the dog's telling you, and then just having the guts to make calls. And I think that's all really important things to point out, particularly when it comes to balancing the amount that you're trialing with the amount that you're training, um, how everything may be affecting what you and your dog are, are experiencing and what your dog is learning with every single outing. Cause our dogs don't know the difference between training and trialing to them. It's all still playing the game. Um, so I think that's a really important point to you know, highlight is that that's something we have to keep in mind when we're doing these things. But as you were describing the types of hides that you may see at the summit trial, and also when you were talking earlier about, you know, the bleachers and things like that. And again, this is just an opinion or what you've observed, but do you think that this is something that is basically barring certain dogs and people from participating, or am I just not hearing that correctly? Um, that's a good question. I do think that a trial like this is a lot for like an older dog who's lost a lot of their mobility um, and just, you know, can't get around the spaces as well, can't lift up as well, you know, dogs with real back issues. Um, some dogs may still be able to communicate the hides well enough to the handler without taking those extra steps. You may get more wares and have to then, you know, explain to the judge what your dog is explaining to you. But I would say like the thing like the bleachers, um, that could be dangerous for some dogs. You know, if the dog doesn't have very good, you know, traction, like my, my first nose were dog, she was an Aussie border collie mix and she, um, had, uh, a degenerative neurological disorder. Um, and I ended up, uh, retiring her from nose work before she finished her NW3 elite because it just wasn't safe for her to search anymore. She would throw herself headlong into these odor problems with no regard for her own safety. Um, and so it just, it wasn't fair to her to ask her to do that because she couldn't self-regulate. Uh, so I would definitely say everybody needs to evaluate their dog and see if that makes sense for them. And then yourself too, if you have, if you can't, you know, walk for a long time um, or um, if your own, like my balance isn't always super good and my traction isn't always super good. And so um, I, I, as soon as I saw the bleachers, I knew that I was going to need to take it a little slower and be more careful because I do have a history of falling. <laughs> as a kid, I would twist my ankle all the time. Um, and so, you know, I took it slow and my dog responded pretty well to that. But she, um, she's a little older than she used to be. She's eight and a half now. Back when she was about four, I think I had twisted my ankle unrelated to dog stuff. And then we were doing an NW3 and she was running down this exterior and I ran with her because I didn't want to slow her down. Not the greatest thing for my ankle, but I did it anyway. Um, and so I do think people, it's hard. Like when you've worked really hard, you've gotten through one, two, three NW3s elite and now you're in summit. It can be really difficult to say this isn't an appropriate level for us. Um, but people have to be you know, careful with their dogs and honest with themselves about if it's the right thing to do. And for some people, it may be better to um, look into other ways of playing Nozick with your dog, either um, potentially other venues or mock trials and fun days. Um, there are a variety of people doing different kinds of fun days that may have some aspects that are like Elite or Summit, but you can 
you know, take things down a notch or say, oh, I'm going to, you know, not run that one, but and not feel like it's, you know, this official event that you need to complete everything. And I think that that's a really great thing for us to always remember is that particularly for people who've been involved with any given venue, but NSCSW is an excellent example, is that if you have gone through the levels, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of commitment, and you feel as though you have to maybe potentially do this thing when really that's not true. And if you have achieved anything, whether it be even just an NW1 or an elite, that is still your accomplishment. It's not as though you're now a failure because you don't do summit if you've determined that that's maybe not a best fit for you and your dog. So I think that's a really important thing for people to understand because I know for a lot of my newer clients, they just assume that if I start competing, that means I have to do everything. Otherwise, I haven't done what I was supposed to do. And that's not really how it works. <laughs> no, any, yeah, everyone has different accomplishments that are, you know, amazing for them and their dog. Like for my first dog, like I mentioned, she was very dog reactive. And, you know, NACSW nose trials were basically the only real competition I could take her to because of them being more open to reactive dogs, red bandana dogs. Um, and there weren't obviously weren't any really any other venues around at the time anyway. Um, but I like agility trials were not the thing for her. They did not help her reactivity, but, um, you know, so the fact that she got through NW one, two and did several threes was a huge accomplishment. I, you know, I, at some points I didn't think I was hardly gonna be able to take her down the street, you know, with the reaction she would have to other dogs. So that was, very meaningful to me, even though I would have loved to have gotten some more titles on her, that was really more than enough. And the fact that she got to play and, you know, even after I retired her from trials, we still played at home for a while until that was too much for her. So I totally agree with that. Um, and I, I think that, you know, a lot of people start nose work with somewhat older dogs as sort of their retirement sport. And so then you have to, you know, even temper your expectations a little bit more. If you're starting with a 10 year old, you know, you're not going to maybe get quite as far through the levels. Maybe you will, but you may not get as far as someone who, you know, starts with a two year old um, who has like their prime to be competing. And that's a great thing for all of us to remember is that it's none of these things are equating the quality that you have with your dog. It's not as though, well, you have this title. That means you're great. And you have that thing. So that means you're gross. Like that's, that's not yeah. what it means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely not. And for some people competing, isn't the right answer at all. Not even an ORT or, you know, a novice AKC, you know, if, if that's going to be, a really stressful, not fun environment for you and or your dog, it's not worth it. You don't have to compete. You can have fun at home. You can have fun in classes with your friends. Maybe even mock trials are, you know, not as stressful and fun enough. Maybe they're not. And people don't need to feel, you know, compelled to trial uh, just because a lot of us think that it's really fun. So just because you've been so kind with giving us so much of your time today, just so that we can wrap up the podcast episode as far as what summit trials are like, if you could just describe three things that you didn't like about the summit trial, if you have three, and then three things that you did like about the summit trial, I think that'd be great. Absolutely. So um, three things that I didn't particularly like. And so one of these isn't, it's not the summit trials fault at all, but the weather was gross. <laughs> it was very cold. Um, really, really wet. Um, but that being said, I prefer that to 100 degrees. So that was the main thing that was, I would say, an added difficulty to what's already difficult about Summit. 
uh, was just dealing with that. Um, another thing that was hard for me was, I think I mentioned this a little bit already, but a number of my fellow competitors weren't really having a great time, either because they uh, didn't feel like their searches were going well, whether they were or not, because some people felt like their searches weren't going well, but they actually ended up doing very, very well in the trial overall. Um, or because, like I was saying, they like to find a lot, a lot of hides, and that wasn't happening. Um, or just sort of the cumulative stress of not knowing how you're doing for so many searches. Um, so that um, their negativity, uh, even though they were trying not to be overtly negative, was challenging for me. Um, because I wanted them to be having as much fun as I was. Because um, I was thrilled to be in Subit. I had a blast. Um, but so that's something that I've dealt with at other levels too. Although usually it's more on the side of people trying to tell me how their searches are going when I do not want to know anything when I'm trialing. Um, I don't want to know anything at all. But um, so I will sometimes like hide in my car more. And here, you know, I was being fairly social, but then, you know, working, you know, I talked about the other kind of mental management type things that I was trying to work on, but this is another one of not taking in like other people's feelings about a given trial. And that can be really hard for me. Um, and then the last thing, and this goes for a lot of trials, um, not just Summit, but I, there were a few mistakes that I made um, in my searches that I really didn't like. And I was kind of frustrated by them, um, particularly at the time. But um, the nice thing, and also about having so many searches, was there were a couple things that came up two or three times that I was able to, after the trial, really analyze and figure out what was going on with me and or my dog, although it was, it was me all three times, um, so that I can figure out how to address that. And um, I want to, you know, go into the next summit trial, you know, way more prepared and um, have worked through some of that stuff. So that was frustrating, but a very, very good learning experience for me. Um, and then um, things I like, I really enjoyed clearing the big search areas, having those big, long searches. Uh, it was, it wasn't always like a blast in the moment. It was a little bit stressful at times, but it was challenging and it was really fun to have a new challenge. Uh, like we said at the beginning, I've been competing in nose work for a really long time and um have and i've been doing elite trials for maybe a little over three years now something like that so i've done a, quite a few of them um and so this was something completely different um it felt completely different the outcomes were different the way the odor felt and the problems felt and everything was very different and very challenging and so that was kind of thrilling um to go through and then, of course, having an extra day of searching with my dog was quite fun. We've had some um, elite trials where we've gotten back to the hotel room at the end of the day, and I'm exhausted, and my border collie, Hazel, is still asking me to play with her and, you know, do something else. And so I think she really, really enjoyed having two days of searches. Um, and then, um, even though some of the negativity was frustrating, I always really enjoy trialing where I have quite a few um, nose work friends or acquaintances or can make new friends and acquaintances. And that's one thing that I love about the nose work community is that I basically know people every trial I go to and they're very supportive and a lot of them have become really good friends. And so that was a, a really fun part of the trial. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And I, I think it's a really great way of, you know, helping people understand that while 
this may not be something that they thought was ever in their plan of something to do. They have a better appreciation for what a summit trial experience is like. And the, I think it's always good to talk about the pros and the cons and then understand that I think from what you're describing is that there's a lot more pros. And then I heard you say when I plan to do my next one. So I'm assuming you're planning to do another one. Oh, yes. I can't <laughs> wait. I haven't figured out what the next one's going to be, but I'm dying to do it. And that's a good thing for people to hear, right? Because I think when we start talking about the complexity of the searches, the types of skills that you need, the way that the day is laid out, and all this other stuff, it sometimes can be perceived as, oh, well, my God, I couldn't possibly do that. But then it's the challenge. And I think it's a lot of it is a personality thing, where I think you are a really good representation of someone who enjoys competing is able to view it through the proper lens of it is a challenge. It's a way to test my training, but I'm still having fun with my dog. And that's a really hard thing for people to have. I'm on the complete opposite extreme where I'm basically like, I don't care. (laughs) It's just like, like, like trialing is like, Mm -hmm. I just don't, I, I really just do not care. But it's, I have to say it's very invigorating to hear someone who is genuinely excited about trialing and looks at it the right way. And it makes me think, well, no, maybe I should try that trialing stuff again because she's having an awful lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) I do love it. Um, And I do think, like you mentioned, uh, one of the most important things is attitude. Um, And if someone is trialing, if they're choosing to trial but not having fun with it, then they should look into ways to help themselves bring out that excitement and joy and fun for them and their dogs. And sometimes you have to fake it. Um, But then that'll transition you over time into really genuinely enjoying it. And for a lot of people, competition is just really stressful and it is stressful for me. Um, But again, I think it's a blast. Um, And for people that do struggle with competition stress, I think uh, mental management is a really excellent tool. And there are a lot of other ones like that as well. Um, but being, you know, really cognizant of your own attitude and then also how you're transmitting that to the dog. Well, I really want to thank you so much, Natalie. This was a fantastic podcast episode. I think it was extraordinarily informative. Again, if people are just getting in like, oh, well, I wanted to see what the summit is. Well, you're going to get a lot more information out of this as far as things you could be doing with your dog at any level of your training. So I really want to thank Natalie so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you all for joining us for our podcast today. It was very informative. Happy training, and we look forward to seeing you soon.